Welcome back to our series on faith and doubt. Actually, this series is about what happens when faith meets circumstances. And we've been looking back in history into your Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and there is a period of history that lasts from about 1000 BC to about 586 BC. So think about a 400 year period in the history of Israel that is covered by the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Those four books in your Old Testament cover basically that period of time. And what it covers is the stories of the kings of Israel. And we're using the stories of some of those kings to look at what happens when faith meets life circumstances. So let me remind you where we've been. We started with Solomon. He ruled from 970 BC to 930 BC. And when he finished in 930, the kingdom of Israel, that whole area, split in two. And confusingly, the northern half was called Israel, the southern half was called Judah. This is called the divided kingdom. This is gonna last all the way till 586 BC for the next 300 years. You'll have a king in Israel in the north, you'll have a king in Judah in the south. And we talked about the first king of Judah named Rehoboam, he was Solomon's son, and the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, he was not. He was a, a sharp young man that the 10 tribes in the north picked to rule them. And we looked at each of those two kings and the challenges that they faced and how their faith fared when it met those challenges. Both of them struggled with vulnerability before God. And so they chose their own way to meet their circumstances and they abandoned their faith and relied on their own skills. And for both of them, that worked out poorly. Afterwards, we fast forwarded about 60 years, and in our last lesson, we talked about the king of Israel. So I'm talking about this northern kingdom, and his name was Ahab. He married a girl, Jezebel, who was from up here in what's modern day Lebanon, and she worshiped the Baals. And we talked about Ahab's reign and how his faith between Baal and Yahweh, or the Lord, or God, how his faith uh, wavered between those two. In this lesson, I wanna stay in this exact same time period, but I want to go, let me show you, to that southern kingdom of Judah. And almost exactly the same time that Ahab was ruling in the north, Jehoshaphat, yeah, I know, that's an unusual name, but hey, I predict, top 10 boy baby name next year. Jehoshaphat was ruling the kingdom of Judah in the south. And I wanna look at a couple of events that happened right at the end of Ahab's life. And I want you to see how Ahab and Jehoshaphat deal with these situations a little bit differently. So let's go to the book of 2 Chronicles. This this story is also in the book of 2 Kings. I'm just using 2 Chronicles for variety. Uh, we're gonna read the text and the story out of this 2 Chronicles. And here's our introduction 
to Jehoshaphat as he becomes king in Judah. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years he walked in the ways of his father David. In other words, he is faithful to God. He did not consult the Baals, meaning he didn't worship at those temples like Ahab did up in the northern kingdom of Israel, but he sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. Remember, he's in Judah, and it says he sought God rather than what Ahab was doing in Israel, seeking the Baals. The Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all of Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. So if you remember, in the northern kingdom, not only did they worship at two temples, like the one in Jerusalem, but there were also golden calves, and there were temples to the Baals, uh, to the god Baal, and his consort Asherah, kind of a mother goddess figure, and she was typically worshiped on hills, high places, under a tree, or sometimes a totem a totemic kind of pole. And so what they're saying is, is in the north, they had drive-in worship of any god you wanted, but in the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat said no more of that, and he tore down those idols, and his heart and his faith was pointed toward God. And so you can kind of see the contrast. Now, he became king when he was 35 years old, and he's gonna rule by himself. He had a regent for a few years, but he's gonna rule alone for maybe 21 or 22 years. But he's about 35 years old, and he's basically, his heart is turned toward God. Let's move on. Now, Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. So the northern kingdom of Israel under Ahab and the southern kingdom under Judah and the other kings, they were at odds ever since 930 BC. And so for the next 60 or 70 years, they still had some bad blood. They fought a few battles and they weren't really allies. And so during this time, Jehoshaphat fortified his country, built up his army, but at the same time reached out for a diplomatic alliance. And so Jehoshaphat's son, his name was Jehoram, he would become king after Jehoshaphat died, married one of the daughters of Ahab. And that was a way of establishing friendly relations. I mean, you typically didn't invade a country where you were mutually in-laws for the kids. Um, it just made Thanksgiving dinners really awkward, right? So he married his son to one of Ahab's daughters, and so relationships started to get better. Now, some years later, he went to visit Ahab in Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of that northern kingdom. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him and urged him to attack Ramot Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to war against Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are and my people are as your people. We will join you in the war. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. Now here you see a big difference. And that is Ahab is determined to attack. I'll show you where he's going to attack here in just a second. He's determined to attack, he wants the land. It turns out 
that he has a hard time finding a prophet of the Lord, but Jehoshaphat said, we need to ask God, is, is this something you're gonna bless? Well, one of your prophets, will you answer us and say, yes, do this or don't? And Ahab goes around and he consults the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Baal all tell him, oh, absolutely, go on out, king, you're gonna win, big victory, gonna be great make Israel great again. And so Jehoshaphat though, he says, wait a minute. He says, can we not find a, a prophet of God? I mean, I see these prophets of Baal. And Ahab says, well, yeah, there's one guy, but he never says anything good about me, so I never talk to him. And Jehoshaphat says, I wanna hear from a prophet of God. You see the difference in, in these two. Ahab still has a very pluralistic faith in that, oh, any God will do but Jehoshaphat is devoted to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, etc. So they get this prophet in and he comes before Ahab and he says, all right, you never have anything good to say, but what's the deal on this? And he said, well, the Lord says this. He says, number one, you should definitely attack remote Gilead. And number two, when you do, you will die. And Ahab goes, you see what I'm talking about. I get no respect around here at all. This guy never says anything good. Anyway, so they decide they're going to attack. So let me show you where this is. It's kind of a territorial war of aggression, but all these kingdoms are fighting. So this is the kingdom of Israel. You see Samaria in the north that I'm marking. Of course, you've got Jerusalem, the kingdom of the south where Jehoshaphat is. Right about here is where remote Gilead is, just southeast of the uh, Sea of Galilee. It's in the kingdom of Aram Damascus. That is the name in those days of modern day Syria. And the uh, capital city of Aram Damascus was Damascus, and it literally is modern day Syria. While we're here, you see the kingdom of Ammon, you see the kingdom of Moab, you see the kingdom of Edom, they're all down the eastern side of the Jordan River. Uh, that is today, some of it's Saudi Arabia, but most of that, or excuse me, Egypt, I'm sorry, but most of that is Jordan today. And so those kingdoms were always at war. And so Ahab said, hey, why don't you, I mean, let's face it, our kids are married to each other, let's just go to war together. You can help me capture this town, this rich town that I've been wanting to capture from the Syrian people. And so he agrees, Jehoshaphat agrees. So the king of Israel, continue in 2 Chronicles 18, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to remote Gilead. And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself, just put on armor and regular you know, uniform like one of the soldiers, but Jehoshaphat put on his royal robes. Now, time out here for a second. Here is an interesting character insight into Jehoshaphat. I'm just gonna draw a conclusion from this that Jehoshaphat was not the sharpest tool in the shed. I mean, he might have just been a little bit short of the full sampler platter. I mean, think about this. He says, you know, I'm gonna go into battle in disguise because the enemy usually likes to shoot the guys that look like kings, right? Shoot the guys that look important, but you should definitely dress up in your robes. Jehoshaphat says, sounds good to me. I think that's a great plan. So I'm not so sure about Jehoshaphat's intelligence, but I am sure about his faith. Look at what happens. Now the king of Aram, 
had ordered his chariot commanders, this is the Syrian king, do not fight with anyone great or small except the king of Israel. What's he saying? Same thing that happens today. I mean, in modern wars, snipers always looking for officers. Uh, and that's part of why in battle, modern battle, and this is actually, this has been true for a long time, officers typically went into battle without their insignia. Because you, if you could kill the leaders, obviously you could really cripple the army. So what the Syrian king is saying, I mean, he knew this 2,800 years ago. He says, look, all you guys, all you archers, when you see somebody that looks like the king, I don't care about anybody else. I want you right at that person. I want you to kill him. Because if we kill the king of Israel, we kill Ahab, the soldiers will be disheartened. We'll win the battle. So when the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, hey, that's the king of Israel. Why? Because Jehoshaphat goes into battle looking like a peacock, right? And they go, that dude is dressed like a king. Let's go kill him. And that's what they do. So they turn to attack him, but Jehoshaphat cried out. He prayed. He said, Lord, help me, right? And the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. When the chariot commanders got close enough and saw, hey, wait a minute, that's not Ahab. They stopped pursuing him and went back into the battle. So another really interesting character insight into Jehoshaphat. Number one, you see he's probably not that bright. He's either young or inexperienced or something, but this was not a smart move. On the other hand, he's pretty devoted to God. He wanted to know what does God think about this endeavor? Let's pray. The modern day thing would, let's pray and let's consult wise people and let's see, does God have a direction for me to go? Does God have a particular way that seems right to go? So we would seek God through prayer. They sought God in those days through prophets. They would get a prophet of God and say, inquire of the Lord and see, does the Lord say yes or does the Lord say no? And the Lord didn't always answer all of those prayers any more than he always answers with a clear cut yes or no to us, but he sought the Lord. And then you realize that when he gets in trouble, what does he do? He cries out to the Lord. And so Jehoshaphat has gone down in history as a very faithful king. This is why. It's not necessarily that his conquests were the best, that he was the best king ever in terms of economics or building, but he was a faithful king. And that's why his epitaph reads very differently from Ahab. Jehoshaphat followed in the ways of his father David and was faithful. Ahab did more to anger the Lord, the God of Israel, than any king that came before him. And that was basically the difference between the two. So Jehoshaphat survives this battle, but look what happens. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. Now, what's happening here? They don't know it's the king. This is just in the battle. And so an archer just sees a guy in a chariot and says, okay, I'm in a battle, I'm gonna shoot him. He does, but instead of hitting the armor, it's a really lucky shot. And it goes in between the creases of the armor between the breastplate and the thigh pads, or it goes somewhere, it's a very lucky shot, and it's a fatal shot, and it, it pierces him, and it's just like, that is bad luck, right? That could happen to anyone. The king told the chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting, I've been wounded. And all day long the battle raged, 
And the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Arameans, facing the Syrians, until evening. Now, why did he stay there? Why did he not go back to the field hospital? Because, just like the Syrian commander knew, if you can get the king to go down, everybody's gonna run away. And so, when they're fighting and they turn around and they go, there's Ahab, he's not dressed up, but that's our king back there standing up in his chariot. And so he stands there all day trying to win the battle but he's lost so much blood that at sunset, he dies. So let me pause for a second. I don't have a big faith lesson in this, but I wanna make an observation. I've only told you a little bit about Ahab, and I hope that you will read in the tail end of 1 Kings and uh, into 2 Kings, and you'll see about the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, it's a very complicated story. I've only told you a little. I've told you enough to know that he's not faithful to God, that he's very fickle, he wavers in his opinions. But he's also a man of weak character and he did some really horrendously evil things. Uh, he and his wife in particular together did some evil things. And so here you have a situation where Ahab takes advantage of naive, faithful Jehoshaphat, sends him out thinking if anybody gets killed, it's gonna be him, and he is rescued by the hand of God in this case, and Ahab, through unlucky circumstances, quote, is pierced with an arrow and dies. Now, when you and I read this story, it makes us feel good. I mean, no, admit it, you feel good that Ahab, you know, kind of basically uh, got his just desserts. I mean, that's what we would say is, you know, he basically got what he deserved. There's something about the way we are wired that likes to see what we perceive to be justice being done. And if you look at this story and you see chance happening, I mean, if you don't believe in God, you just think, man, that's unlucky, too bad. You were really smart, Ahab, but it didn't work out. Jehoshaphat, you were dumb. You probably should have died, but it did work out. But when you see God overlaying this, and that is the story of the scriptures, that's the story of history, in my view, is you actually see justice playing itself out independently of our motives. Now, I said there wasn't a faith lesson, but there's a little one here. And the point I wanna to make to you is, as a Christian business person, as a Christian parent, as a Christian spouse, you're gonna do things a certain way. And sometimes, actually I'll predict that at some point in your career, your marriage, your family, whatever, you're going to see other people who don't follow God, and they're going to do things differently, and you go, you know what, that's, that's smart. It's probably gonna work out, but that's not the way my God tells me to do things. And I want you to remember the myriad of stories like this. They're just little pieces all through the Bible that the God of the universe sees what is happening, and sooner or later, as surely as you live, he will do justice. And that's what happened to Ahab, in this case, with Jehoshaphat. Well, Ahab dies, and on goes the next king of Israel pops up. But Jehoshaphat, his story goes on just a little bit. And he really uh, encounters the most difficult challenge of his kingship. So let's continue now. He goes home after this battle, and he's ruling in Jerusalem. So we're in 2 Chronicles 19. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba 
to the hill country of Ephraim. And so what that's saying is, by the way, uh, Beersheba's in the southern part of his kingdom of Judah and Ephraim's in the northern part. So basically from one end of the country to another. He went out into the country and turned the people back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. That's a powerful statement. He came back and he said, not only am I faithful, I want to lead these people back to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who brought them into this land, the God of Moses who delivered us out of Egypt and gave us the, the Torah, the law, to set us apart. And in other words, he says, I want to turn these people back. And so he appointed judges in the land and he said, consider carefully what you do. This is an interesting attitude. This would be great for our justice system as well because you are not judging by the standards of men but by the standards of God who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. So what is he saying? He's saying, in all of your decisions, I want you to fear God, meaning, I just told you, God will do justice. And so if you take a bribe, if you favor the rich over the poor, if, if you judge partially, if you judge unjustly, you have a judge who will hold you accountable. And so the interesting thing to me about this is when you see Jehoshaphat and you see his character is he's living by faith. And that's something we talk a lot about around here, but what does it mean to live by faith? I wanted to pause for a second and just look at the life of Jehoshaphat. I mean, you don't see anything huge here except you see him seeking the Lord for his decisions, his economic decisions, his decisions about his career, his decisions of where to take his country and how to lead his people and how to appoint the judges. Living by faith means inviting God into every aspect of our lives. And what I mean by that is, is God isn't just living in your church on Sunday and God isn't just your moral guide in your big decisions in life. But when you look at Jehoshaphat, his faith in God permeated everything he did. Big decisions, like whether or not to go to war. Little decisions, like how to appoint judges in the land. And so you see this idea of living by faith, and that really describes Jehoshaphat. He's living by faith because he's bringing God into all of his decisions. Well, let's go on. What happens next? Second Chronicles 20 says, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. So who are these people? Well, they're mainly tribes, but they're, they have a country. It would be like saying, and then the Canadians and the Mexicans invaded the Americans. I mean, it, in other words, I'm just saying to you, these are nations, these are political entities of people who have national pride, who do Pledge of Allegiance, that kind of thing. And so these nations see an opportunity to invade the kingdom of Judah. And so they get together and they begin to invade and it's a sneak attack. Jehoshaphat has no idea this is coming. I don't know if he's just naive, I don't know if his intelligence sources aren't very good, but those three countries get together and before he knows it, they're already in his land. And so the text goes on to say, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, 
a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea, the other side of the Dead Sea. I'll show you in just a second. It is already in En Gedi. I'm gonna use the name of the, uh, the springs there by the Dead Sea. In other words, they're already in your territory. There's already a big army. You didn't even know these people were coming. And so who are these people? The Moabites, you, in our last lesson, I wanna show you something, I wanna tie this into history. In our last lesson, I showed you the Meshastila. The stila is a piece of stone and it's got inscribed writing and King Mesha, he was the king of Moab. I'll show you where that is in just a second. But he was the king of Moab. And so Omri, the king of that northern kingdom, and Ahab had conquered Moab and they were exacting tribute. And so Moab has been a kind of a vassal state for a while. And so when Ahab dies, Moab decides, Mesha decides, this is my chance. I'm not paying them tribute anymore. In fact, I'm gonna go get a couple of allies. I'm gonna build up my army and I'm going to attack. But he decides that Judah, the southern kingdom, is weaker and so he's gonna attack there first. And so you can see the Mesha Shtila where you ta it talks about a contemporaneous king of these events. And so I just want you to once again realize that archeology span when it speaks, and it doesn't always speak, tends to speak in support of the historicity of the Bible. So what I'm telling you that is happening in about 850 BC is also recorded other places beside the Bible. So what's happening here? So here's our map. You've got Israel in the north, Ahab has died, a son takes over. You've got Judah in the south. So you have Moab, this is where King Mesha, we just saw the shtila he put up, he makes an alliance with Ammon. Think Ammon, Jordan. Think about the city of Ammon, Jordan. Okay, you still see the remnants of the name of the Ammonite people, the Ammon. He makes an alliance with them and he makes an alliance with a little known people from down here. And the three of them put their armies together and they go around the south end of the Dead Sea and they come in from the desert and they stop at En Gedi, where the end, of, the end of that arrow that I just wrote on there is a beautiful oasis, natural springs, there's tons of water there. They bring their armies there, they stock up on water, and now they're ready to go up. You always go up from the Dead Sea. Dead Sea, lowest place on earth. You're always going up. They're gonna go up and conquer Jerusalem and they're not very far away at this point. And so, Jehoshaphat is in a real bind. I mean, his kingdom is about to be conquered. He's about to be killed. Everything he's done for the Lord is about to be done. Is it because he was a poor king? I think so, that's my opinion. I mean, if you're a king in those days and you don't have a good enough intelligence to know there's a big old army marching toward your country, you're probably not that good a king. But my point is, he's a faithful king. And I think this story is intentionally, uh, wants to talk about that. You know, one of the questions I put out on, on the handout for you to discuss and think about on your own later is, you have an intelligence and faith is a very interesting thing. How does intelligence and faith, how do those two things work together? Well, sometimes you'll see really capable kings who are faithful. And sometimes you'll see not very capable kings who are faithful. My opinion, Jehoshaphat is not that capable a king, 
but he's very faithful. And I think sometime, God uses both. God uses all faithful people in the way that he's planned to use them. But I think sometimes God wants to put an exclamation point by a lesson, and he will say, I am gonna take Jehoshaphat, not the world's best king, but I wanna show you that I can do great things because he's faithful. Skills are good. Being competent at what you do is a good thing, but ultimately, God uses our faithfulness more than he uses our success. So, what is Jehoshaphat gonna do? Alarmed, well, you should be, Jehoshaphat, he resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for the whole country of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Now, what do you see in happening again? Once again, one of the great things about him is his reaction. His basic reaction is always turn to God. Deciding whether or not to invade Ramat Gilead, he said, let's inquire of the Lord. He gets into the battle and he's in trouble, he immediately prays. He gets into this situation and he goes, oh my goodness, this is calamitous. I mean, I'm about to, to suffer a disaster. What's his first reaction? Seek the Lord. And you see this reaction in all faithful people. Now, I'm not telling you he didn't do anything else. We'll get to that when I get to the end of the story. But what I wanna tell you is, is the faithful people of God, the famous ones in the Bible and the not so famous ones like you and me, when we are faithful to God, we are characterized mainly by the fact that our reaction to great things happening and to bad things happening is to seek the Lord. I want you to think about King David, for example. King David is a great example of this. He was a very competent king. And he did some great things, he did some very bad things. But in every circumstance, he turned to God. He turned to God in the good times to say thank you. He turned to God in the difficult times to say, Lord, rescue me. He turned to God after he had sinned to say, Lord, forgive me. And there is a powerful point there, and I wanna take time to make this lesson. I consider this to be Jehoshaphat's fault. I mean, there's no reason he couldn't have known this was brewing, gotten his army together. And I'm not saying he still shouldn't have prayed, but he could have been in a lot better circumstances than he is. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like if something happens that's bad to me, uh, you lose your job or you get an illness or something happens that's, that's somewhat out of my control, I feel so comfortable turning to God saying, Lord, help me, rescue me, I'm relying on you. But I don't know about you, but when I make a mistake, when I bring difficulties on myself, and I'm gonna be honest with you, in my life, 98% of the bad things that have happened to me have been self-inflicted. There have been things that happened to me, I had no control over it. But honestly, sin, foolishness, those have typically been the reason bad things have happened to me. And when that has happened, my tendency, I don't know if you're this way as well, my tendency is to say, well, you know, that's on me. You know, when I feel a little embarrassed to go to God and say, Lord, help me, because I kind of think God's gonna say, are you kidding me? You did this to yourself. Dig yourself out of this hole. Now, that's not God's character, but I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel that way. But I want you to realize, if you look at the life of, well, all of the faithful characters in the Bible, David, Moses, Jehoshaphat, what do they do? They turn to God and it doesn't matter 
whether this was something out of their control or it's something they should have taken care of. They made a mistake or they sinned. They still turn to God with no embarrassment saying, Lord, forgive me, Lord, help me. And I wanna encourage you that God's faithfulness to us is not conditioned on you doing everything right. Now, that's kind of the way our world works. I mean, if you do everything right, you're fine. If you make a mistake, it almost seems like the world pounces on us. That is not the way God is. You can turn to God in your successes. You can turn to God in the, in the disasters in our life. You can turn to God when you are getting your just desserts. You can turn to God when, you know what? I did that. I destroyed that relationship. God, I did this. You can still turn to God. It's a powerful lesson from Jehoshaphat. So he turns to God. He calls a fast. A fast is a time where people don't eat for a certain period of time. Why? Simply as a way to say, God, we are fully focused on you. There's nothing more important than you hearing our prayers and please deliver us. And that's what he does. So what happens? Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah. What that means is in Jerusalem, all the people have come together to pray. They all realize we are in deep trouble. And he stands up and he prays this prayer. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? What he's basically saying is you are awesome. You are the God of everything. You rule over the kingdoms of the nation. In other words, what's he saying? This is kind of interesting. He's saying, those guys look really powerful, and yes, their army is about to destroy us, but I want to acknowledge that you actually rule over the kingdoms of the earth. All of history is in your hands. By the way, that is the lesson of the book of Revelation in the New Testament, is it looks like the power is in this world, but Jehoshaphat understands. He sees through the eyes of faith and he says, you rule over all the kingdoms in the nation. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Oh God, you drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and you gave it to the descendants of Abraham. These people have lived in it, built a sanctuary for your name. We have lived in it, built a sanctuary for your name. If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and we will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and you will save us. But now, O oh Lord, here are men from Ammon and Moab and the Munites from Mount Seir whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away and did not destroy them. See now what they are doing coming to drive us out of the land that you have given us. O Lord our God, will you not judge them? For, watch this, we have no power to face this vast army. What's he saying? He's saying, we are vulnerable, we are weak. Do you remember the lesson of Rehoboam and Jeroboam? I think that was our second lesson in this series. They faced difficulties and they became afraid. But instead of trusting God and being vulnerable and realizing that when we are weak, then we are strong, 
instead they relied on control, they relied on people pleasing, they relied on other things. Look at what Jehoshaphat does. He is perfectly comfortable saying, oh Lord, we are helpless in front of these circumstances. He's willing to be weak. He's willing to be vulnerable. And in that past lesson, we talked about faith is not afraid of being vulnerable. God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is seen in the weak things of the world, not the strong things of the world. Jehoshaphat is willing to be vulnerable. He says, we have no power to face this vast army. We do not know what to do. How many times have you prayed that? I have prayed that so many times. Lord, I do not know what to do. And listen how he concludes. But our eyes are upon you. I want you to think about, if you have children, if you don't, you'll still understand this. Think about a little child and they get into some difficulty or, or a problem and they turn and they look at you. And what are they saying? They're saying, I have no idea what to do here. I mean, they're a little kid, they're helpless. They don't know how to get the car door open or do what, whatever it is. And what do they do? They look at you. And what does that mean when they look at you like, I hope you can do something because I can't and I'm turning to you because I trust you, I need you, deliver me. What is this saying? He says, our eyes are turned toward you. We're like little kids who have no idea what to do and all we know is we're gonna turn to dad and look at you and say, help us. This is the essence of faith, is being so vulnerable that we can turn to God with our problems and say, we don't know what to do. In fact, I would bookmark this, this verse, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. There's so many times that you will pray this verse. Oh God, we have no power and we do not know what to do and our eyes are on you. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. Well, as he prays this prayer, God answers. Now, in those days, I told you, God answered through prophets. I think kind of like preachers, you know, someone would get a word from God. Today, God typically answers us in different ways, and that's his choice. But typically, my experience has been God answers us through the New Testament. We have something these people never had. We have the record of how God has dealt with Jehoshaphat. We have the New Testament words of Christ and the disciples and the early church. I, I find that a lot of times God answers in that way. And it seems to me the more I read my New Testament and the more I ingest it, the more clearly God seems to speak to me. But in this case, he spoke through a prophet. Watch what happened. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Yahaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, etc. He was a Levite. He was standing in the assembly and he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what Yahweh, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army for the battle is not yours, but God's. By the way, I wanna highlight that. The battle is not yours, but God's. What do I mean by that? You're gonna see this people, they're gonna to go to war, and you and I are gonna attack the problems in our life, but there's a huge difference in our attitude when we realize, ultimately, 
this is not in my control. I will do what I can do, but ultimately, the big battles in my life belong to God. I'm relying on him. And that's what he says. The battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Z's. In other words, they're gonna climb up through the mountains and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. How many times have you read this in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. This is just a powerful uh, statement. What you see is the people humbling themselves before God, vulnerable and weak and acknowledging it and asking God to rescue them. God answers them. God doesn't always answer by saying, oh, by the way, I'm gonna take care of that bankruptcy. Oh, by the way, uh, your marriage will be healed tomorrow. But God answers our prayers and God is faithful, Romans 8, 28, to work in all circumstances for good. It may not be what I have in mind, but God loves me and he will work for good. And in this situation, he works for good and he works for good in a way that kind of puts an exclamation point for you and me. I mean, I want you to remember, this happened historically. This battle actually happened. This king actually ruled. These countries really did invade. This happened historically, but it didn't just happen for them. This story happened and you and I are reading about it 2,800 years later. Do you know how unlikely that is? Unbelievably unlikely. That has been preserved for you and me because there's more to this than the battle that's happening there. This is a lesson for you and for me that God is faithful to those who will turn to him in faith and humble ourselves before him. So what happens? Well, the scripture goes on to say, the battle happened, by the way, uh, really close to Jerusalem. You see Tekoa right there? Actually, I probably ought to change this. Tekoa is a little town. Tekoa is like just a few miles from Jerusalem. So this army's already up by Tekoa the next day. They're, they're literally within striking distance of Jerusalem. Tekoa today is like a suburb of Jerusalem. It's not very far away at all. And so they come up by Tekoa. Jehoshaphat takes the whole army out and they stand there and they see this huge army coming. Jehoshaphat, in his simple, faithful way, he not only comes out with the army, he comes out with a choir. He comes out with singers and he says to all the army, today we trust the Lord, we will do what the Lord said. And he starts to have the singers begin to sing. Now think about that, you're an army, you're coming up and you see the Israelites up there, you see their army, you say, we can beat those guys. And they're singing praise songs to God. Well, as they begin to sing and as the armies come up, the Ammonites and the Moabites turn on the Munite peoples. They, and by the way, this is not the first time this has happened in history. So I'm not telling you that God's not involved. I'm just telling you this happened before. When you get coalitions of armies like that, there are a lot of times when the bad blood and the old feuds and the opportunism happened to where, I mean, this happened in the battle of Troy, for heaven's sake, you know, back in 1100 BC. You would see one army turn on another 
It's like, yeah, we came to fight those guys, but I hate your guts and I've been around you too long and you're driving me nuts. We've been quarantined together too long. And so they fought each other. And sure enough, the Ammonites, they're watching. The Ammonites and the Moabites turn and destroy the others. And at the end of that battle, then there comes a kind of a free-for-all. And the scripture says, as they looked, as the dust settled, there are all these dead bodies and the armies are retreating. So literally the armies fell apart before they could accomplish their goal. And again, that's not that unheard of that that happened, but God said, I will deliver you, and he did. And so Jehoshaphat and the rest of them turn around and go back praising God all the way to Jerusalem, saying, you delivered us from a catastrophe. So the point I wanna make is he goes out with the army. They're willing to fight. I don't sit on my couch, pray to God and say, okay, you please pay all my bills and I'll just be sitting here, you know, watching Netflix, right? No, we make an effort, but we trust in God. We know that we do not have the power to work out all our circumstances the way we want. And our eyes are on you. And I think this story is a powerful story. If you take a king that's not that great a king, but he's faithful, and God is able to use his faith to overcome that adversity and even more importantly, tell that story to 28 centuries of believers to take heart and realize that's what pleases God is my faithfulness. So if you feel like one of those people that I'm in a situation and I did a stupid thing and I caused this problem myself or you know what, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh, I'm just not, and so maybe I'm not worth that much to God. I hope this story encourages you as it encourages me. It's not about our ability, it's about our faithfulness. And we've seen some kings in this series who were not very faithful and what happened. You're looking at probably the least capable king we've talked about so far, and God used his faithfulness to do great things, and he'll do the same thing for you and for me. Our next episode, I wanna to talk to you about a pair of kings. I wanna go into the, on down into history a little bit. We're gonna leave 850. By the way, that battle happened in 850 BC. I wanna take you like 100 years down the road. And we're gonna skip quite a bit because one of the really big events in history, in the history of Israel, is gonna happen in 722 BC. So about 100 years later. And I want to show you the king of the north, whose name was Hosea, and the king of the south, Judah, whose name was Hezekiah, and they're both gonna face the exact same threat. And I want you to see how their faith meets those circumstances. So I look forward to seeing you next time, but until then, remember, it's not the strength, it's not the ability that God uses, it's our faithfulness that God uses. So go be faithful in the little things. God bless you.